Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. for a second here. Some words we just sang. For the one who gave me life, there, there's nothing that's a greater sacrifice. Is that a hypocritical statement that we made? Do you and I really believe that for Jesus who gave us life, nothing is too much of a sacrifice. Because I think if we really looked at our lives and opened them up, we would see practically, maybe not theoretically, but practically, that there are a lot of things that we won't sacrifice for the one who gave us life. Jesus, we come before you this morning. And on a day that, on a good day that we remember our country's independence and the ideals that were fought for, God, we thank you for that. But also, God, maybe in a a similar vein, we've also fought for our independence from you. That every day is a struggle to declare our dependence on you as we are bent and naturally set toward independence. God, this morning as we open up your word and as we seek you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us and you would open our eyes so that we can see clearly. I pray that you would take down our defenses, that you would guide us, that you would speak so clearly this morning that we would be paralyzed from sin, that we could not take another step in it without admitting willful rebellion. So God, I thank you for this morning I thank you that every morning your mercies are renewed in our lives. God, I thank you that you forgive us and you sustain us. That your love is the most persevering thing in the universe. This morning I pray that we would hear you. And that what we sang this morning, glory, glory, there is no other king but Jesus, Lord of all, would be true in our lives, not just a statement that we make. But we would serve no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So this morning, we're gonna, I'm gonna kind of talk through the last piece of the citizen's mission as expressed in God's word. Uh, in our series, as we've been talking about the kingdom of God, um, and in particular today, uh, I think there's things 
that we don't wanna preach, but when we do preach them, we really prefer to apply them to others, but not ourselves. That's kinda how I feel this morning. I've been kinda not looking forward to this morning for a while because it's the hardest thing for me. And I think it's, it's a very, very hard thing for us, but here's, here's the thing about how we've placed ourselves positionally. Myself and you know, Travis and Kyle, we don't preach the word in order for us to agree. We preach the word in order for us to be transformed. Um, and so, you know, whether or not whether or not there's an agreement of, well, I agree with what you said. The greater purpose is that what I say is true to scripture and that transforms who we are in Christ. Um, this morning, I wanna start a little differently and uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. I don't know if you are a rule follower or a rule um, bender, but uh, put some, some, some documents, some uh, pages of paper in the pews. If, if you, uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but it, it says in red, which you know, red is always a warning color. Um, and uh, so it said, don't open. Um, how many people have already opened it? No? Okay, good. Everyone is good. Everyone can go to heaven. Um, no. <laughs> that was the unpardonable sin, actually. Um, nailed it. Uh, anyway, uh, what I wanted to do this morning is start off with a mission briefing. Um, mission briefings are given to give the state of a mission that's been given to a group of people to say how it's going, what's going on, is it, is it, are we moving forward, are we moving backwards, what needs to change? So I was kind of looking around and I found some different, different government websites and, and one of, I'm sure there's lots of different ways to do mission briefings, but I found kind of an outline and I kind of grabbed it and I, and I thought back to the mission that Jesus has given us in Matthew 28 that says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and I will be with you till the very end of the age. That's kind of the mission Jesus said to make disciples, to teach obedience, to be obedient, and that he will be with us, not only individually, but corporately, with each one of us, inside each one of us, till the end of the age. How are we doing on that mission? And so uh, you can open that up right now, and I wanna walk through this. This is where I believe based on scripture and based on what I see in the church as a whole, this is what I see, this is what I believe, this is what I believe scripture tells us. So here's the situation that we face. There is rebellion and there are rebel kingdoms set against the God of gods and the King of kings. That's the situation we live in. We live in, in a rebellion and multiple kingdoms that are set up against God. What we face in this situation is constant fighting and attacks. One, to keep captives from entering into the kingdom of God. To keep them as slaves to sin. Two, to keep citizens from becoming like Jesus. If you are a citizen, it's to keep you from actually looking like Jesus. And three, to keep citizens from being united under the banner of the king, to keep citizens separated and divided within the kingdom of God, which means there is not total allegiance to the one true king, because if there is an obedience to that king, then we would be united. And so here's what's happening. The kingdom forces are distracted from the expressed mission and disunified in their focus, resulting in character development contrary to that which resembles Jesus Christ. We know this. We know this is true. We know that, that, that people who claim to be disciples of Jesus including us, oftentimes, 
are characterized by things that do not characterize Jesus, do not reflect Jesus, do not look like Jesus. We know this. So our mission and how we are called to execute our mission is this, that one, we are organized in a particular way. We are organized in small local units with local leadership reporting to and under the authority of the king. That kind of presents a problem immediately, doesn't it? Because those of us in local leadership don't always recognize ourselves as being authority under the king and obey him. Our daily activity is threefold, rescuing captives, transformation of ourselves, and oneness within and throughout the local and global cells. Here's the thing, that is our mission. We have jobs, we have families, we have all kinds of other things that we're doing. We have life that we live, but if you are not actively engaged in those three things daily, you are not carrying out the mission that you've been called to. This is important because the entire world needs to know that Jesus was sent by God, the Father, and he is the only way to restoration and peace. That's why this is important. Because the entire world needs to know that Jesus was sent by God and that he is the only way to restoration and peace. Upon a completed mission, here's what happens. Former captives will be obedient citizens. Current citizens will be more like Jesus. And all in the kingdom of God will be one, just like the Son and the Father are one. And how do we accomplish this mission? We can only do it in one way, the way that Jesus expressed that we accomplish the mission, and that is this. We can only accomplish this when we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus as king. If we don't deny ourselves, if we don't take up our cross, if we don't follow Jesus as king, we will not successfully carry out the mission. Then there's the issue of communications. We need to talk about our behavior and our tendency to go off on our own rather than focused obedience to the revealed word of God and the constant surrender to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because what characterizes many, many, many disciples of Jesus in the church is that we go off in our own way because we feel like the way we do it is better than the way God told us to do it in his word. That's been true of God's people from the beginning because we are arrogant and proud. And so we need to refocus and reassess how we communicate because this statement should be true, but it's unfortunately not. We will talk to each other with respect, honor, and humility, and we will talk to the captives those that many of us have deemed our enemies in this world, we will talk to the captives with compassion, truth, and love. And just so you know that compassion, truth, and love is not a multiple choice answer, there'd be a D all of the above with that, okay? We don't get to pick one. We don't get to pick B, truth. I'll talk with the captives only in truth. And so how do we serve? How do we support the mission? Our network of allies is in cells located in our own community and around the world. And our network is broken because the cells have decided their uniqueness or individual convictions should be elevated above the mission. Our focus must be recalibrated to the mission. This is kind of where we are. If you go to different groups of believers, you will find that we and them have elevated our convictions and preferences above the mission. So the risks, the concerns that we now have and the risks we run is this currently the risk is that the church is not convincing the watching world that Jesus was sent from God 
that what he says is true and that he's worthy of being obeyed. Maybe there's some argument about that, 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 that currently the risk is that the church is not convincing the watching world that Jesus was sent by God. I think that the, 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 the visible behavior of the body of Christ tells the world that Jesus doesn't have that much power because God's people can't even get along. So how strong can Jesus be? If we continue this path, we will experience mission failure at least as far as we are responsible. When I say we will experience mission failure, I don't mean that the mission of God will fail because that is absolutely assured. The question is that when you and I see our king personally face to face, will he say, well done? Or will he say, you were actually a hurdle in accomplishing the mission that I called you to. And so what we need to do, what we need to do is we need to assess the status personally of my active or passive opposition to the mission objective set by our king. You and I need to identify what we need to change in order to be fully obedient to that stated mission. And we need to figure out what concerns are holding us back from fully embracing Jesus' mission. I think that that is a sobering and accurate assessment of where things are in the church. Our problems and abuses in the church come not from obeying scripture too radically, but for not obeying scripture enough. That's really where our problems come from. When the world looks at us and say, oh, those Christians are radical because they really, you know, they believe what the Bible says. No, actually, the problems that the, the world sees in us is that we don't obey the Bible enough. And, 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 and so the last few weeks, we've talked about our mission as Jesus has given it to us. And we, we, we began talking about this idea of imaging over freedom, which basically is this. Are you living as a slave to God or a slave to sin? Those are the only two options. You and I are either in slavery to God or slavery to sin. And do you live in the actual freedom, the pr pri premier Priority, the freedom that God has given us, which is to accurately image the heart and holiness of God to everyone else. Are you exercising that freedom? Is that the primary freedom you're exercising to, to display the heart and holiness of God to others? Last week, or last week Travis talked about transformation over conformation. And he said a couple things that he shouldn't have because they're offensive. Hardest part of obedience isn't saying yes to God, but saying no to self. He accused all of us of having a hard time of saying no to ourselves. How dare he? <laughs> I can say no to me, I just don't choose to do it. And he said this, he said, we are living in a time where there is a call to a reformation of radical obedience to Jesus. And then this morning, I'm gonna unpack the last part of this, which kind of saw a little bit in the mission briefing, but that is this unity over autonomy. And I believe this idea of unity that Jesus calls us to this command that Jesus gives his people connects imaging and transformation. It, 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 it reveals God if we actually live in unity and it expresses radical obedience. 
I believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that if we in the body of Christ are not unified, then we are neither imaging Christ nor are we being transformed to become more like him. Yet we have set ourselves in a direction in a way that we can ignore unity and claim that we are imaging Christ and being transformed to be more like him. And so this morning, I wanna, I wanna walk through that part of the mission. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, he says, make disciples, bring people into the kingdom. He says, teach one another to obey everything that I've commanded. That is obedience, that is transformation. And then he says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. And here's what's interesting about that. That is a plural I will be with you. That is you, not you as an individual, but you as all those who are disciples of Jesus. So it means Jesus is with every one of us. How? The Holy Spirit inhabits, indwells. So every person who claims Jesus, who, Jesus, who has given their lives to Jesus, have, has had their sins forgiven, and is a disciple of Jesus, has the Holy Spirit inside of them, and Jesus is with them to the very end of the age. So Jesus is in us, with us, every one of us. That means we are all connected. Whether we all like each other or not, it doesn't matter. It means we are all connected, period. And so Jesus' disciples follow Jesus' orders they are called to unity regardless of their personality, their feelings, or their abilities. And unity with the body of Christ is already a reality for those who have been forgiven of their sins. You are one with the body of Christ. If you have Jesus, you are one with the body of Christ. That is a already reality. However, it is also a directive, and if it is ignored or diminished, if we ignore or diminish unity in the body, then it is disobedience, it is dereliction, and it is an actual denial of Christ. Because when you reject another believer, you are denying also the Holy Spirit who indwells that believer. It's a mess in the kingdom. Unity is not an option or a lesser command. It is what Jesus calls us to. This past week, when I was coming back from vacation, I watched a movie on the plane, and uh, it's a movie called The Kid Who Would Be King. It's a Disney kind of retelling of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table for kind of a kid movie. Um, and don't judge me for watching this because it had Patrick Stewart in it and anyone who loves Jesus will watch anything Patrick Stewart is in. Anyway, um, uh, so anyway, I watched this movie and it's, it's, it's these kids who, who then have to save the world from the evil that Arthur vanquished back in, in Camelot and all that and so they have to come together and, and so there's this, this rousing speech that, that the kid who is kind of the Arthur of the group gives to all of his classmates because obviously it's a group of students who are gonna save the world um, from all this unspeakable evil. And so this is his speech. His name's Alexander and he gives this speech of his tight group of kind of knights to the, the other students. And he says this, me and betters, used to hate Lance and Kay, and they hated us. We were sworn enemies. But now we know that's how evil tricks you. It turns people against each other to distract them from itself. Because it knows that if we fight together, it doesn't stand a chance. So who will stand with us today? That could not be more biblical. I mean, it could be more biblical. Because it's not just that we stand together that evil doesn't have a chance, it's that we stand together in Christ that evil doesn't have a chance. But they got the gist of it. You see, here's the thing, is that the enemy 
wants to distract us into being disunited so that we don't recognize what the enemy is doing and that evil is doing. That's why Jesus so clearly directed us to unity. If you have your Bibles, you can open to John chapter 17, and I'm gonna read part of that chapter starting in verse 20, but here's, here's what's interesting in John 17. John, the apostle, records a prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. It's known as the farewell prayer or the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. And it is one of the very few prayers of Jesus that is recorded in the New Testament, and it's definitely the longest prayer that's recorded by Jesus. Jesus prayed a ton. We, we know this because he's always missing early in the morning, and he's out praying. And, and so Jesus prayed a lot, but, but really the, the Bible doesn't record many of his prayers. In fact, the Lord's Prayer isn't even a prayer he prayed. That was a prayer he was teaching to his disciples. Pray this way. Yet in John 17, John records this prayer that Jesus prays. And it's one of those few prayers. Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended king of the cosmos, the lamb who is worthy, and the eternal son of God is praying to his father, the God above all gods, king above all kings, and Lord of lords, before whom the mountains melt like wax, that the people of the kingdom would be gloriously united so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the prayer that Jesus prays in a nutshell. That's what he prays. I'll catch up. He prays a lot of things, and you, you should go back and read all of chapter 17. Actually, start at 15, and then start reading. But, but I'm just gonna jump in in verse 20. And Jesus prays this. This is not Jesus saying this is how you should pray. This is Jesus praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, us today, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you break down that prayer, that is intense and it is talking about you and I. And let me just ask you this question. If you were to ask Jesus, did God answer my prayer, what would he say? I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> See, the prayer that Jesus prays is, is that we, who are his disciples, would experience a unity, a spiritual unity that is like the oneness of the Father and the Son. He doesn't just say, I pray that they'd be unified. He gives to the degree. He says in the same way that you and I are one. And the basis for unity is the person and work of Jesus Christ and his glory that he has already given to us. The glory already given, which means we are, we are by our new nature one. And so here's the problem that Jesus' prayer presents for us. If we are not unified in the body of Christ, then the person and work of Jesus Christ wasn't enough. 
if that's the basis for our unity. If Jesus' work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension does not result in our unity, then it means it wasn't enough. Or it just means that we are living in active rebellion. Unity is built on the essentials of the new birth. And Jesus makes some declarations, not petitions in this prayer. He says, number one, the world does not know the Father. True. Number two, he says, disciples know the Father because the Son has revealed him. Also true, right? Jesus revealed the Father. Jesus has given the disciples his glory, the same glory that results in the Father and Son being one. I have to believe that's true because Jesus said it. I just don't see the result of it. So there, there's, that kind of presents a problem in that moment. And unity is the mechanism that convinces the world that Jesus came from God and they believe. You know what, you know what evangelism hinges on? the unity of the church. You can go out and give the four spiritual laws to unbelievers, and if they see disunity in the church, it doesn't matter. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, the reason the world will know that I am sent from the Father is based on the unity within the church. So you can go and witness to people till you're blue in the face while at odds and disunified with the body of Christ, and that seed will fall and fail to take root. Why? Because it's dismissible. Because the Jesus you are sharing can't even work out a simple problem between you and another person who claims to be allegiant to Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus says. And if you can read Jesus' statement any other way, let me know. It's kind of like we have tried everything but unity to witness to the lost. Why? Because unity is too, too costly for me. You see, what the world sees in us is what they will believe about God. So let me ask you this question, and, and I'm honestly open for pushback. Do you think that, that when the world looks at the church, do they then assume that God is united within himself? I don't think so. I think what the world concludes about God is God is a mess. That God can't make two corresponding statements that, that align. <laughs> if what Jesus says is true. See, even, even thinking about what God has revealed to the church in the last year here at Crosspoint and the church at large is that we have devalued one another and called each other names over wearing masks. We have parted ways. We've made accusations against each other. Oh, they're a coward. Oh, they're a sheep. We have talked about each other behind each other's back, anchored in political ideologies that, by the way, won't last. They won't. I frankly don't care what anyone thinks about critical race theory. It won't last because you know what'll happen? Is one group of people, based on their relationship with Jesus, will either be in hell for eternity or in heaven present with Christ for eternity. That's actually the division of people. And there will be more people in hell if the church is disunified 
Because those people who are captives won't be able to see that Jesus was sent by God. Because the church can't listen to each other and acts exactly like the world. We demand our convictions and our placed, and, and we place those convictions at the top, whether it is a worship preference, role in the church, justice in society, rule of law, you fill in the blank. So here's the thing, if the world sees love and unity, they will believe God is love. If they see arrogance and division, they will reject the message of the gospel, and that is on us, period. But, here's the thing. Unity is unreasonable, and I firmly believe that. There are people in the church that I wanna be unified with, and there's people in the church that I don't want to. To be completely honest. Unity really isn't something that's possible, is it? So maybe when Jesus prays here, he's talking about that invisible unity that that is internal in the spirit or something like that, that we really are unified in the spirit and we can argue and go our separate ways and talk bad about each other, but internally we are unified because of the spirit. The problem with that thinking is twofold. First, how would invisible unity confirm to the unbelieving world that Jesus was sent by God? Because by nature, by nature, invisible is not visible. Secondly, we cannot allow the church's invisible unity through the Spirit to be an excuse for ignoring the church's visible disunion. Jesus prayed specifically for the unity of his body, and, and it is the core of imaging Jesus to others. That's how we look like Jesus when we are united and experiencing the transforming power of sanctification. See, here's the thing. We can't be unified because uni uni unity is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. I can't consistently get along with the people in my own house. How on earth can I get along with you? <laughs> I mean, unless I never see you and I never hear anything that you do, then we're good. <laughs> unity is miraculous. It is a work of God. The church's unity is God's gift. Listen to this. The work of unity is God's gift to a divided world that proves the Savior King Jesus was sent by God the Father because the world cannot find unity. contrary to what I was taught by all of the artists back in the 80s, that we are the world. And, and, so, and, and so really, therefore, the, the posture of kingdom citizens who are disciples of Jesus toward all human beings is one of either unity or pursuit. We are either in unity with those who are disciples of Jesus by the new nature, or we are in pursuit of those who are not yet disciples. Those are our only two positions. You are either, with every single person that you meet in life, you are either unified with them because they are a new creature in Christ, or you are pursuing them because they are captives and they are slaves to sin. There is no other option biblically. You are either in unity or pursuit. And, and, and so, these really are the only categories that a follower of Jesus can, can have in their life. And the lack of unity in the church is the primary, now listen to this, the lack of unity in the church is the primary cause of disbelief in the gospel. And I say that because Jesus said it. 
Why does Jesus say he wants unity? So that they will believe that Jesus is sent by God. So then it would serve to be true that if we are not unified, then disunity is the greatest cause for unbelief in the gospel. And it is possible that when you and I are ununified, practicing disunity, we are actually not only just refusing to live together under the banner of King Jesus, but we are actually denying others the gospel. We say people have rejected the gospel. We are actually rejecting them from the gospel because we are too self-important with what we think and the tribes that we've come from. You see, faith leads to unity, which leads others to faith. That's how it works. Faith leads to unity, which leads others to faith. You can't give someone the four spiritual laws while you yourself disobey the command of unity. Because Jesus says it's not how it works. It's kind of like you're going out witnessing while being disobedient to Jesus. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six, Paul says something really specific. You're welcome to turn there if you want, but Ephesians four, chapters, verses one through six, he says in the first three verses, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, Paul self-identifies as in slave language. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy to the calling by which we've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Live and behave in a manner that is deserving of what you've received from being forgiven and accepted and called into participation. So how do we do it? He puts it right there. Well, one, we have to have humility, gentleness, patience, enduring in love. Let me ask you this. Does that describe Christians? Humble, gentle, patient, and enduring in love. It says, the, the word there where it says, eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit, that is zealously, coming from an intense desire, an impatient expectancy, maintain, not passive, but guard and retain, being united as one in the Holy Spirit, accompanied with a bond slavery language of peace, being enslaved to peace as you are a slave to God. Peace being relational, free from disputes. And for those who are saying, well, yeah, but there are very few reasons to abandon unity in the body of Christ, yet we've expanded those beyond the expansion of the Old Testament law that the Pharisees did. We're actually worse than the Pharisees when it comes to unity. We've made more reasons to excuse unity than the Pharisees made more laws to obey God. And we're either worse or better than them. I'm not sure which that means depending on which side you're looking. And then Paul goes on in verse four to say this. He says, there is one body and one spirit just as you we're called to the hope, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He says there's one body, one spirit. Here's the thing that we have to understand. Every single disciple is connected intimately by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which is why division is so evil. 
You and I, when we are divided, are rejecting the Holy Spirit in us and in the person that we are disunified with. We are, in essence, rejecting ourselves. When we reject someone else with the Holy Spirit in them, we are rejecting ourselves with the Holy Spirit in in us. And, 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 And so how can a person be divided in themselves. We, we think about that today. When, when, we, when, when you see a person who is divided in themselves, what, what, we have a term for that. That's mental illness, right? No, but, but seriously, that, that's, that's, if a person is divided in themselves, that is mental illness. So here's the question. Is the church mentally ill? I actually think that's a pretty accurate term to describe a church in disunity. It's mentally ill. It's divided with, it is a, the body of Christ is divided in itself, which suggests it's it's mentally ill. See, disunity might be the greatest heresy, the most offensive profanity, the severest sacrilege we can promulgate against the Holy Spirit. Yet we dismiss unity because wearing a mask is partnership in a government plot to brainwash children or the absence of a mask is the antithesis of loving God and loving others until the government says it's not. And the best words I can come up with to respond to that in the way we act was said by a witch. Boo! Boo! Our our true love lives and we marry another. His love saved us in the sin swamp and we treat his call like garbage and that's what we are in disunity. Kings and queens of refuse, of slime, of filth, of putrescence. That's pretty accurate, isn't it? If we are really living that way in the body of Christ... That probably describes us fairly accurately. See, the irreducible essence of what Jesus has done in our lives is this, that Jesus came from God as God to die for my sins. That Jesus rose from the dead as full payment for my sin and he now reigns. And that I have declared my dependence on and allegiance to the person Jesus because of the work of Jesus. Those, that's the bottom line. In order for us to be a disciple of Jesus, we have to recognize that Jesus came from God, was God, and that he died and rose to forgive our sin against God and that he gives us new life, and that we spend the rest of our lives obeying him. That's it. And and so so we, we, but we look at that and we say, well, but there's a lot of things that I disagree with about these, uh, some other churches. We're not, we're not all on the same page theologically. Okay, well, how about this? I'll pick a big one. How about the Trinity? Here's the thing, you don't need to know the word Trinity or even articulate it to be a Christian. Do you need to know the word Trinity and articulate that God is a Trinity to be a Christian, to be forgiven by Jesus? No, you don't. Is the Trinity important? Absolutely. In fact, when you are taught or learn about the Holy Spirit, who is one person in the Trinity, who is God, you cannot deny the essential things about him and say something like, if you, somebody says, here's what the Holy Spirit has and is doing for you, and your response is, well, I, I don't think it took the Holy Spirit to save me. I think that was just Jesus. I would actually question your salvation at that point. If you're taught that, if Scripture teaches that, and you say, oh, no, no, I don't think that's true. The Holy Spirit is unimportant in, in, in my life in the process of salvation, if you are, when you are taught that, then I would wonder if you actually 
have salvation because you're denying the teaching and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in your life. How about something maybe lesser, but sometimes Christians make as important as the Trinity? What about a literal 24-hour day creation? I mean, I know what I think Scripture teaches. But is that really a reason to, to part ways with other believers? Is that a reason to dismiss Jesus' command of unity? Jesus literally said that his people would be united like God and he are one. And he didn't say, and that they would make sure that only the true ones believe in a 24-hour literal day creation. We use that as an excuse to part ways. It's kind of like we're looking for reasons and outs to disconnect with other believers. How about women in ministry? Do you think whether or not a woman preaches on a Sunday is more important than the unity of the, the body of Christ? Does the Bible talk about women and ministry? And is there some, te- absolutely, there's some teaching. There's a wide range of application and understanding of that too. There is Zero flexibility in what Jesus said about unity. It's interesting how we dismiss that so quickly. A few years ago, John MacArthur at a conference made a statement about Beth Moore. He said, go home. And that was dismissed as funny for some and offensive to others. That was sin. And you know what else was sin? My reaction to that because I devalued and dismissed John MacArthur. So his sin was not fixed by my sin. You know who had actually unbiblical theology for most of their ministry career? Benny Hinn. He taught things that were not biblical. Recently, Benny Hinn repented of what he taught And I heard him say in an interview, he said, I, because of my pursuit of fame and money, I have disqualified myself from ministry. And you know what some leaders in the church who I would associate with did? They made jokes about his repentance. That's sin. That's called sin and rebellion against the kingdom of God. What about charismatic gifts? That seems to be even more offensive to God because the Spirit's the one who makes the choice of what gifts to give to whom. The Bible's super clear about that. And then we argue in part ways and call each other names because we have different ideas of what the charismatic gifts are and whether or not they're for today and whether or not they should be used in the church. So we refuse to associate or listen to people in the kingdom who have a different view. So we dismiss unity for something that's not expressed as strongly as unity. See, the DNA of unity is this. Think about courage for a second. When do you know that a person has courage? What convinces you that a person has courage? When do you trust a person to be courageous? Courage is only confirmed and accepted when fear and danger is present, isn't it? Like if somebody tells you, oh man, don't worry about it. I I am an incredibly courageous person. Stick with me and and we'll do well. Do Do you really put a lot of weight in that? I need to see how that person acts in the face of danger. And it doesn't mean that there's an absence of fear because a greatly courageous person has a lot of fear. They just actually move through it. You see, courage is courage when it is deeper and stronger than our fear. And that's the same thing with unity. Unity is untested and unreliable when general agreement and and harmony is the case. When there's nothing to argue about. Unity is only confirmed in the midst of disagreements and difference, yet we choose each other over and above those differences, which, by the way, it's been confirmed the last year that the church doesn't have unity. 
That's been confirmed. If we, again, the state of the church is this, that, that, that church history is a story of rebellion and division and repentance. It's really no different than Israel. Think about Israel in the Old Testament. Israel walked with God, they rebelled against God, they were punished, and they repented. And then they walked with God, and then they rebelled against God, and then they were punished, and then they repented. That's, that's the church. That's us. Right now, I think we're in a time of needing to repent because we haven't been on mission. You wonder why our society is rejecting the gospel? You wonder why less people are coming to Jesus in our country? It's not because evangelism efforts have disappeared, it's because the church has not obeyed Jesus and has functioned in disunity. That's why people aren't coming to Christ. We divide about these debatable and uncertain issues we divide about the nature of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think we've not only grieved the Holy Spirit, but we've abused him and ourselves because of our pride and arrogance in our own thinking and the trust of ourselves. You see, the goal isn't that the world would look at the church rampant division and say, wow, that is, what a hot mess. I hope this invisible unity thing works out for him. The goal isn't that the world will look at the church's watered-down unity at any cost and say, wow, these Christians sure are nice people. Instead, the goal is that the world would look at the church's Christ-centered, sacrificial unity and say, wow, what a glorious and loving God. So if we really wanna be seeking the lost in the best way, we should quit watering down the gospel and we should also stop insulting the seeker-sensitive churches. We should instead love one another as Jesus loved us. This is how people will know that we are the disciples of Jesus. John said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I didn't say that. And so what's next? I have to be honest, I hate this. I hate this call to unity because it is a ton of work for me. Personally, not just, let's put off leading people, just me personally. Here's what I find. I find, I find that church people are disappointing and arrogant and backstabbing. That's why people go, that's why there's a, a revolving door of, of church attendance. That's why there's a revolving door of church staff. Why? There are precious few examples of a person who's left a church, whether attending a church or on staff at a church, not because someone has deeply hurt them in that church. Now, there are some exceptions. I'm hoping Becky didn't leave staff because I hurt her deeply. I know I hurt her some. And Becky, I'm sorry for calling you out, but you're just right there. <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I know that things I did hurt Becky when she was on staff here. Because we're human. But I also believe that there were a number of times that Becky forgave me. She didn't walk away because I actually think Becky kind of gets this unity thing. I mean, I don't know if she likes it much more than I do, but that's there. And so I'm, if I'm honest, I need to repent, and I have been. Last night when I came to church to pray, I spent my time repenting because I'm honestly so sick of reading garbage that some people even still in this church put on their social media. And they haven't asked me why we've done this, 
but they like to throw it out on social media and say, oh, what a bunch of cowards. Guess what? Leadership isn't a vague notion. It's people behind it. And you know what? I'm sick of those people. But you know what? That's called sin in my heart. I'm sinning too. This is hard. But what's at stake is the world knowing that Jesus was sent from God. And if they're going to believe in him, I have to let go of my own frustration and my own self-importance and recognize that I have to love you through what you do. And there is only a few things that I can part ways with you about, but that can only be done when I eagerly contend for our unity, which means I exhaust myself trying to maintain unity. See, until we get over ourselves, we're AWOL in God's kingdom. We may have not have deserted, but we sure aren't mission-minded and obedient to the one who gave everything for us. So at the beginning, I, I read this sheet, this mission briefing. I decided in November, I'm gonna come back to that. Give us some time to think about whether or not we believe that's true and what we need to do about it. Are we really growing the kingdom by imaging Jesus to others? And I don't mean getting your other Christian friends to leave their church and come to ours. I mean, are we as a people, are, are we actually bringing people into the kingdom of God? I don't care if they go to our church or not. Are we actually being transformed over conformed to the, 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 the behavior of the world? Have we become more like Jesus, which is identified by denying ourselves and carrying our cross? And are we, are we making strides in unity? Have we humbled ourselves and zealously fought over oneness, honoring the Holy Spirit in each other? And here's the thing. We're gonna come back to this mission briefing in November, and, and here's the thing about missions. Bad things happen to the higher-ups upon mission failure in every movie I've seen or they find a scapegoat. When are we gonna take seriously what Jesus did for us and what he's called us to do? I can't get around if a church, if a, if a local body of believers walking together are not accomplishing this mission, then somebody's gotta pay for that. According to what scripture seems to say, the leaders do. And so believe me, this matters to me. And as much as I don't like it, I, I have to live in repentance. If you really want the world to know Jesus, if you really want this world to become more like the kingdom of God, then it's gonna start here. It's gonna start here. I'm gonna pray for us. And I know today was, was a hard thing and I know I went over. But if you listen to the message, you can't leave. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> but I really believe God has an incredible thing in store for us. But we have to become the kind of people that he wants, that he can trust to give that future to. We pray for us. Father, we come before you today and, and, and God, I, I thank you for the grace that people have given me today to, to talk as much as I talked. God, I pray that what came out of my mouth was, was words that, that were moved by the Holy Spirit and anything that came out of my mouth that was not characteristic of Jesus would, would fall away and be buried. God, I pray that we would, as individuals and as people, look at where we are and what we do and what our lives are reflecting. 
God, I pray that you would develop a deep sense of compassion for the lost world around us. God, that we would be willing to deny ourselves and step into unity with one another so that the world would know. Father, I, I thank you that you've been so clear as to what we are called to be. I pray that you would help us obey, that we would have that reformation of radical obedience. God, that we would accurately show your heart and your holiness to the people around us. And that, God, that we in the church would lay down all of our, our garbage and our preferences and even some of our convictions that don't ladder up to the primary so that we could be the answer to your prayer, Jesus. Thank you for not giving up on us and continuing to work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.